Hi, everybody. It's Laura Champion, the host of the podcast you're about to listen to and the chair of the Speaker Discovery Series Committee. The Speaker Discovery Series was an event that we created in July of last year to help give platform to new voices in the AFP Toronto community. As chair of the Education Committee, I would hear over and over that people would not be accepted to Congress because they just hadn't had the experience to speak, but there wasn't anywhere for them to gain that experience. So myself and an amazing committee created an event that allowed people to gain the experience they so desired. The Speaker Discovery Series is a little bit different than your average AFP event. There's no slideshows, nor formal presentations, and it's kind of a bar atmosphere. We have speakers get up and tell stories, stories about fundraising, and stories that aren't always comfortable to tell. These stories always center around a theme. In July, the theme was firsts. In what you're about to listen to, the theme is whoops, because as fundraisers, we all make mistakes, and it's important to share the learnings that we get from them. Some of the stories are funny, some are sad, some are probably very relatable, and so we wanted to put it out as a podcast so people could really understand what this event was about and how important it is that we all just talk to one another. It's hard out there. So what you will hear is a live recording of the event that happened in January of 2018. And so there's a little bit of choppy audio here and there. We're still working out the kinks, but I do hope that you will enjoy and share and love this podcast and love this event as much as we as a committee do. The next one is going to be held on May 9th, 2018. Um, we are still working on the theme, but that will be announced when the applications go out. Those applications should go out around March, and I highly encourage anyone who is interested to submit. You get coaching on how to speak, and you get to talk in front of a really kind, warm audience, and you get amazing feedback from three really esteemed experts. You'll hear on this podcast just who they are. I also encourage others who maybe can't be part of the Toronto community uh, to start their own speaker discovery series. Reach out to me or anyone else on the committee. We will share all of the information that you need to get one of these off the ground. I really believe in giving a platform to new voices, and this is a way to do it kind of all over the world. And I'd be happy to take your recordings and put them out with this podcast as well. I look forward to hearing all your feedback and uh, enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome. For those of you in line at the bar, if I didn't already come over and speak to you, please feel free to stay in line to get your drink. This is uh, the more casual of AFP events, and uh, I want you all to uh, have your food and beverage as we go along. I'm going to take a few minutes here at the top with some uh, housekeeping initiatives anyway, uh, which you probably wouldn't have paid attention to, so we're good. Uh, so thank you. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Um, this is the second installment of the Speaker Discovery Series, uh, and I'm so excited to be here. For those of you who know me uh, a bit more personally, you know that this is a true uh, labor of love. Um, my name is Laura Champion, and I am a strategist with Blakely, uh, and the chair of the 2018 Congress Education Committee, as well as the chair of this committee, uh, who puts on Speaker Discovery Series. Um, tonight, there are more than 100 people in this room, uh, double what we had at the first event. Yeah. Those of you who have come out on a bleak January evening to listen to your colleagues to speak, from Peterborough in some cases, um, you all deserve a round of applause. Thank you. 
Thank you for believing in an event like this. Um, please tweet about this event through the night. Um, we are using two different hashtags. We have future speaking stars as one hashtag and the more simple AFP SDS. So whichever you prefer or both. Uh, we have a ton of really cool, fun, interesting people in the room. Uh, Anne Rosenfield, chair of this year's Congress, is here tonight. Um, so welcome, Anne. And we also have a number of people who spoke at the first speaker discovery series who have gone on to do great things. Uh, and I encourage you to speak to them about all of the uh, wonderful events that they're now part of. So uh, thank you to them for being here. For those of you who are joining us for the first time tonight, I'm going to give you a little explanation of what to expect as we go along. Um, this is very different, as I said, than your usual kind of AFP event. It's a bit more casual, a bit more cool, um, so we can kind of uh, try something new. So tonight is a night to give a platform to folks who have a story to tell that is related to fundraising. Uh, there's no slide decks, as you'll notice. There's no props. It's just a story. The first event was held in July of last year, uh, and we had such a great time, and we found some unbelievable new speakers, so we knew we had to do it again. It's my hope and the hope of the SDS committee that there'll be many more of these uh, events this year. Uh, more on that at the end of the show. Uh, the speakers you'll see tonight are new or new to AFP speakers who are looking to gain some experience speaking in front of an AFP crowd, tell their story, and receive some thoughtful feedback. Um, we have a group of esteemed experts dotted through the crowd tonight. They're going to be taking notes, so you'll see a few laptops open this evening. Those are our experts. Uh, so thank you to Denny Young, Juniper Lociento, and Andrea Orr, who are here in the audience and will be watching each performance. You'll note that we had billboarded that Rakesh uh, would uh, be one of our experts this evening, but he has come down with a horrible flu. Uh, so luckily, Juniper stepped in at the last minute. So let's give Juniper a round of uh, applause for being here with us. Uh, tonight's speakers will uh, be able to use this speaking experience and the scores and feedback that they receive from the judges to then help them to apply to do other AFP events like speak at Congress or apply to do webinars. Uh, what we have heard over and over from people who apply to Congress is, how do I get speaking experience if you won't let me speak at Congress? Uh, so this was an attempt to kind of give an, a new platform and a new way to find voices. And uh, we do have uh, one of our esteemed audience members tonight spoke at the last SDS and then spoke at Congress last year. So it's working already, which just gives me goosebumps. So it's exciting. Um, I'm a bit of a dork. Uh, so, <laughs> thanks Scott. Tonight's theme is whoops. As fundraisers, we all have one or more than one uh, whoops that we'll never forget. Uh, and tonight is about celebrating those mistakes and sharing the learnings that come from it. A reminder to you, our lovely audience, uh, that some of our speakers will getting, be getting personal and emotional. Uh, so I encourage you to be an open and supportive audience as the night goes on. One final piece of housekeeping uh, is that we're actually going to record tonight's show. Uh, and we're going to turn it into a podcast. Uh, so we're going to be able to share it with colleagues across the country and across the world. Uh, so if you enjoyed tonight's show, please promote the podcast when it comes out. Share it with your colleagues. Uh, the hope is that these types of speaker discovery series will pop up across the country and across the world. Uh, it was profiled even in AFP International last time because there are ones that are starting to be generated in the States. 
so enough of me. You guys are probably tired of me. Uh, we have seven great speakers to get to. So in order to break the ice, because who wants to get up here and talk about mistakes they've made, um, I asked a committee member to do it. So <laughs> we have Scott Jeffries joining us this evening. So. <laughs> Scott is the Senior Manager of List and Data Services at Stephen Thomas Limited, uh, and he agreed to be the first person to admit a whoops and get us off on the right foot. So welcome, Scott. I probably don't need a microphone, but I'm going to use it anyway just to be normal. And needs a cord. Hey. Hi, everybody. So I did, I did indeed volunteer to be the icebreaker. So I work at uh, Stephen Thomas. I work in their List and Data Department. Uh, and I'm going to share a whoops. The goal of this is to, yeah, break the ice, uh, set kind of a nice tone to remind everyone you can admit to mistakes and that you can learn from them. Uh, also, my whoops uh, hopefully isn't bad enough that it's career-threatening, because it was at my current job, my bosses are in the audience, but, well, you guys, you guys be the judge. I don't think it's that bad. Uh, so it's data-related, uh, and to, explain it, I have to get a little technical briefly. So people here, uh, a lot of you work in direct response, uh, and so you may know about uh, seeding a campaign. Uh, that's when you add your own personal information into a campaign so that you can better track it. So I do a version of that with a semi-secret technique I have uh, for my data that I send to a different charity. So that's what's done in list trading. And I'm not gonna go into a full detail of list trading here, but in brief, it's a very common and an extremely cost-effective form of cross-promotion that happens in the well, nonprofit sector and in direct mail. So that's my nutshell version of it. So when I have to send my client's data to a different mailer, I have to go through a trusted third party. Uh, so it's like you know, a letter shop or an agency that I have a long relationship with. And I have to seed the data in a way to identify the data being used, as well as the approved date of its use. So I, I think that sounds technical, so I like doing a fun fact analogy to get it across better. So I say it's similar to a paper town used by cartographers to secretly mark their intellectual property. Once upon a time, cartographers would make their livelihood by licensing the maps they'd worked so hard to create. And they had a problem. Once they published this map and it's out in the world, how did they prevent someone else from publishing it and making money off of their hard work? So they had a solution to this. They would make up a town from scratch, something like Phonyton or Not Reelsville or Fakeburg. And if they saw someone else publish their map and see that town, they'd be like, oh, ha, that town's not even real, sucker. I caught you red-handed. You owe me money. So I regularly create paper donors, donors that don't exist except on paper. Uh, and I use their first and last names as a code to identify the data being used, so my client's data, as well as the approved date of its use. So now that that's been said, I can, you know, maybe you'll better understand my alarm when a paper donor named Larry Friendly started coming to my door unexpectedly. So some kind of breach happened. About a year ago, uh, it was a normal winter morning at Stephen Thomas Limited, and I was 
flipping through some mailing seeds that had arrived. So when I'd sent out data, mailings had happened, and I, of course, the person on the receiving end, received the seeds. Flipping through, going through a bunch of made-up code names like Landon Avania, Jedi, Bills, Koopa, Amaraf, Larry Friendly, and Larry Friendly? Uh-oh. So I look at these two seeds, I look at my database, my fancy list database, and I realize these were not approved. These definitely weren't expected. Larry Friendly wasn't supposed to be arriving right now. And to give you some perspective, the data involved was large enough that this was a serious breach. Uh, one use of this file, if you were to put it in dollars, could be up to 10,000 bucks. Uh, and I'd found two uses by different mailers of this expensive file. So I was upset, uh, and I walked around to some other colleagues of mine at Stephen Thomas who are data savvy, and they agreed with me. They looked at the seeds, and they said, you know what, this is a unique record. There's no way it was a coincidence. It wasn't a remailed duplicate or anything like that. Whenever you see this letter come in, see a letter come in with this name on it, you should assume the whole file had been mailed again. Because once you see the file, that's your presumption. The whole thing got used, because there's no other way to know. So I was upset. They had confirmed, you know, it was my opinion initially, but they couldn't think of a way to get around it. Like, yeah, wow, that must be the problem. And I thought to myself, okay, so how could this happen? How could this happen? I looked over my own records. Uh, I was like, no, I didn't seed it wrong. You know, I didn't add the wrong information. Uh, it didn't go to anyone else. It definitely went to this particular trusted supplier for a mailing from a while ago, unrelated to these two mail pieces I'd gotten. So I started drafting a long and accusatory email <laughs> to this supplier, talking about the breached agreements they'd made with me, the thousands of dollars they should owe my client, and all the work they would lose from me for having breached my trust this way. And then I decide, you know what? Email's not good enough. Uh, I have a deep and potentially intimidating voice on the phone. So I was going to make a phone call and maybe catch them off guard and get some real answers from them. Pick up the phone, jot down some notes, you know, the basic points I want to cover. Uh, and also for reference, I pull up the mailing sample uh, that, had, that Larry Friendly, the name, had initially been sent to you know, the last time it was actually approved to be used. Looking at the mailing sample on my monitor, about to make the call, just so I get up the nerve, I have an epiphany, a very thankful nick of time epiphany. <laughs> and I remember receiving this package. It was to my home address that time, because I vary the addresses I use when I'm seeding these files. And uh, my girlfriend had received it, and she knows about seed mailing, so she just curious, reads it, and this actual charitable appeal uh, persuades her, and she wants to make a donation. <laughs> hold up, hold up, hold up. So she turns to me and she said, hey, Scott, uh, this cause is great. Can I just donate with this coupon uh, instead of you know, going online or mailing them separately? And I say, sure, honey. <laughs> Makes no difference to me. Knock yourself out. Um, so she used her own credit card information but she didn't change the name on the coupon. She didn't change the code on the coupon. I didn't tell her to. She shouldn't know that she'd have to do that. 
Uh, so, like that, a data point appeared. And Larry Friendly became a real boy. I had brought him to life. And from that mailer's point of view, they had just converted my roommate Larry, AKA Christine, uh, into one of their donors. So I thought about those two mail pieces I'd gotten. One of them was a house mailing, and the other one, because Larry, Christine, did not opt out from receiving other promotional materials or appeals from like-minded charities, it was a prospect. It was a traded list from the person she had donated to. So I felt kind of dumb. I deleted my unsent angry email draft promptly, uh, and I changed my seed list matrix. So I moved the name Larry and changed it to Lewis for future appeals so that I could actually trust my system again. So the moral of my story, if I am to have one, uh, is to give those around you the benefit of the doubt, take a step back, and look for the simplest solution to your problem. Because it probably is the simplest solution. In my case, no one was trying to get the better of me, sneak something past me, take advantage of me. It was that this fake record, this paper donor I'd made, I allowed to make a real-life donation. It was an actual donor that was fake that had happened. That was the simple explanation. So I'll close by saying that thank you for listening. And that is my whoop story. And I want to say that I, must, I am very excited to hear some other brutal blunders from the other speakers tonight. And hopefully, I have warmed up the crowd a little bit for you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Scott. So for those of you who are here for the first time, that's just a little flavor of what we do here at the Speaker Discovery Series, and you're going you're gonna to hear quite a wide variety this evening. Um, I'm really excited, and I think Scott has really set us off on the right foot here. So up next, one of our first-time speakers, Carolina Hardwick, is a Senior Communications Manager at the YMCA of Toronto. She's a self-described working mom, East Ender, and mediocre yogi. Uh, and I cannot give you a better description of uh, Carolina's story than the title she gave us. The title was, Avoiding a Serious Faux Pas in Front of a Major Donor, or How, I t uh, I screwed it up. Or how, can it, how a Cabbie Can Ruin Your Life in Five Seconds Flat. Please welcome Carolina. Hi, everybody. Thank you for the warm up. Um, all right, so before I start my story, uh, I'm going to just share a little bit about how I got into the not for profit sector and how I found myself almost destroying my career in a cold February uh, afternoon. So, I originally hail from publishing and journalism, and uh, I'm a storyteller by nature. It's what I love to do, it's what compels me in my work, and it's what I enjoy. And when the Great Recession happened and I lost my job, like everybody else at the Star. Uh, I made some decisions and choices. I said, you know what, I want my work to be meaningful. And I've done a lot of community engagement. I said, 
hmm, what can I do? So I talked to a good friend and found myself working in the not-for-profit sector at one of the major uh, charities in the city. So seven years later, I find myself working in this industry and I really love it. But halfway through, like a lot of women, uh, you know, that thing happens where you decide to have a baby and everything changes a little bit and you get to take a year off and it's an abyss of sleepless nights and questioning your life choices and trying to figure out what you're thinking. And then you go back to the working world where you get to wear matching socks and have adult conversations that don't involve Paw Patrol and you feel good about yourself for a while. So when I returned back to work, first weekend, uh, I was given my first assignment. And what it was was to go and interview one of our major high net worth donors, a really warm and caring person with a wonderful um, a wonderful reputation in uh, our circles. And I was going to go out with one of our most senior uh, fundraisers, someone who I really admired and respect, but also had a very, very, shall I say, um, intimidating personality until you got to know her. So had a lot to, to kind of live up to. So went out and did what every working mom did, put away my sweatpants, put on a clean skirt, bought myself a new pair of pumps. First time I wore pumps in a year, that was questionable to do in a February. Uh, and off I went. And when we arrived, we're in the cab and I'm making small talk with this really lovely woman who I actually really feel like we created a great rapport over the years when I got to know her. And, you know, got to know what the donor was about on the ride and felt really good about myself. I'm like, okay, I got this. This is good. And we're about to get out of the cab and my colleague's paying the cab, the cabbie and I'm getting my recorder, I'm getting my notes out. And as she's paying the cabbie and she's on the other side of the cab, I've got the door open. Uh, the cabbie moves forward by about an inch or two right when I'm about to step out of the cab. So, whoops, uh, the cab goes forward and I go backward and then out of the cab, tumbling straight on both of my knees in tights in February on pavement. So both knees are pretty banged up, one's bleeding pretty profusely and the cabbie's driving off. And I'm thinking, I don't, I don't have your badge number, I'm not going to be able to sue you. So my colleague comes around the corner and she takes a look at me, takes a look at me. She goes, oh, but we have to go ring on her door right now. I'm like, can you do this? Should we go? I'm like, you can't do this. Like, like, look at you. And I'm like, but we have to do this. This donor's going to be the Turks and Caicos next week or London, and we can't miss this opportunity. She's looking to fund a series of programming for seniors and seniors are really close, near and dear in my heart. So I did what any other self-respecting professional did. I got up, I rang that doorbell, I said hello, and I spent the entire time like this. So trying very hard to hide one knee, and somehow she didn't notice, and she invited us in, and a really wonderful, warm person, and said, come into my front room, and then it struck me. I looked around, and her entire front hallway and her entire seating room was creamy white. Beautiful couch, white. Beautiful carpets, white. Beautiful rug, white. The rug looked like it cost more than a year of mortgage payments on my house. And all I could think of is, I'm going to bleed on this lady's carpet. And is my boss going to pay for the dry cleaning? Because I don't know how you dry clean a 14 by 18 carpet. I don't know how you do that. So I took a seat and somehow I managed to save off her seeing my knees with my clipboard and my notes and, and all my stuff. So we proceed to do the interview. And it goes great. She's lovely. She gives warm answers. She shows great alignment to our mission. And she really gets what we're about. And she gave me a beautiful interview and all the answers I had hoped for. And this whole time, I see my colleague kind of glancing over and being just 
absolutely perfectly um, professional and just owning the situation and we didn't make mention of it. And I'm thinking, I'm gonna actually get away with this. I'm gonna get out of this house scot-free. Nobody's gonna notice what I did to myself even though throughout this entire thing, it's starting to throb really badly and it's starting to create like trickles of blood down my leg close to my new pumps. Ladies, you know what it is to ruin a first time wear a pump, it's cruel. So I'm thinking I'm not gonna get out of this situation alive. Uh, but sure enough, we get to the foyer, we thank her and right when we're getting our coats on, I'm like, oh man, I made this. It's gonna be a great story to tell my friends later. She looks over and she starts like gasping and then kind of screaming and then kind of like, what happened to your, what happened? Are you okay? Are you gonna, are you all right? Should I call 911? Should I get a doctor? And I'm like, no, no, I'm fine. It's a scratch. I look down and my entire shin is just, just covered in blood. And I'm just, I'm looking like a train, like lady, I'm looking like a train wreck. I'm looking at like, like first year university. I don't know what I'm doing. Bush league train wreck. But sure enough, she was super kind. I'm like, no, no, it's just a scratch. And she's like, not having any of it. She's like, that's, that's really serious. And I'm like, it's really, I'm fine. So we managed to get out of the house, and right before we leave, she goes, listen, you did a really great job, and I hope you do a really great job with this story. And I'm like, I will endeavor to do my best. She's like, I sense you will. So when we're in the cab uh, with my colleague, she gives me a hug, and she's like, are you okay? And I'm like, yes, I'm just absolutely mortified and, and like just drowning in shame and embarrassment, and I feel like a 12-year-old. And she goes, but you did a really great job. And I go, thanks. And I'm like, can you do me one favor? When we get back to the office, can you not say anything to anybody about this? And she goes, I'm gonna tell everybody about this. <laughs> Which she did. So had to go back to the office. Like this is two o'clock in the afternoon and I, I was in marketing and go over and my director takes a look at me. Now everybody's freaking out because I'm looking pretty gross and I don't have anything to change into. And she's like, should we take you to the, I'm like, we've done this shit. I don't need to get any help. It took six months to heal, but that was fine. Didn't need stitches. Uh, but the thing of it is, is my department after this happened, until the day that I left, this was year four in, in this organization, I left after seven years. Every time somebody made a flip out or a mistake, it was called taking a knee. So <laughs> it followed me to the end of my time at that wonderful organization that I really, really enjoyed working at. So the moral of my story, if there is a moral, hold your head high, remember, you are capable of doing what you need to do. A whoops can't stop you. And if it does, and you fall on a donor's property, consider suing and get that money. Because if that if that's solicitation doesn't work out, there's other means. Carolina's story actually reminds me of something that happened uh, at Blakely. It didn't happen to me, but it happened to one of my colleagues. And she was at a, a client meeting, and she went to the washroom. And uh, she came out of the washroom. She's having the client meeting. She's doing this big presentation. And she had toilet paper out the back of her skirt, like her tights, skirt, toilet paper. And uh, mercifully, uh, the client just grabbed the toilet paper and like, was like, Ooh, and like tried to hide it for her. Um, but then she told the client not to tell anyone, and the client texted another one of us. So we decorated her whole office with toilet paper. <laughs> We're nice. Uh, <laughs> yeah, come work at Blakely. Uh, so some of you are probably wondering, 
how is it that these speakers are so good if they're first-time speakers? Uh, and uh, they've all been coached individually along the way. So that's one of the services we offer for this. So if you're sitting in the audience thinking, hey, this isn't so tough, um, we do actually offer some coaching to help get you going. So just putting a little uh, bug in the back of your brain. So up next, we have Ravid Kodesh, Director, Corporate Partnerships at Children Aids Foundation of Canada. Ravit has made 2018 a year to step outside of her comfort zone, and tonight is a really good start for that. Ravit's story is one that I think we will all be familiar with. I know it reminded me of times when I felt the same. So please welcome Ravit to the stage. everyone. Um, thanks for that. Uh, yes, this is part of my New Year's resolution, stepping outside of my comfort zone. And someone just told me, are you feeling discomfort? Are you feeling discomfort? Because that's a good sign. And I'm like, yes, I'm, I am. Um, so bear with me. So I'll start by telling you a little story that I thought has a bit of a more of a practical, pragmatic lesson for all of us as fundraisers. Um, so several years into my career as a fundraiser, um, I was asked by a colleague who was just leaving the organization, the Children's Aid Foundation, to take over um, a donor relationship, an individual major gift donor. Um, and it seemed so straightforward. You know, this donor was a longtime donor of the organization, CEO of a small investment fund, um, seems like a great supporter, who's a no-brainer. He's a good friend of a board member. All the relationships were intact. Everything was just fine. I thought to myself, this is... Easy peasy. So all I, did, all I needed to do was do a little bit of research, just make sure I'm doing my homework. So I did my research, found out that he's giving it his capacity. So it was just really about renewing his gift, um, getting to know him, maybe asking him about a couple of his contacts, about a couple of new introductions, and that was it. Um, so I was set to go, right? Like one of those really simple, straightforward meetings. Um, so I went to meet with him. He asked me to come and meet him at his office. Um, I waited at the lobby, I remember this, he came in, seemed a bit rushed, you know those opportunities when you, in your mind, this is going to be a great meeting, you're going to have coffee, you're going to get to know each other, he was like very curt. Um, so we sit down in his office and I start with the small talks, you know, those warm, trying to warm up the donor, get to know him, charm him, it didn't, didn't really happen. He just looked, kind of raised his head, steely blue eyes, straight at me, and he started firing questions. So how much did you fundraise last year? Oh, oh, okay, he wants an organizational update. I thought, I can do this. So I gave him the answer. And how many kids did you impact? Oh, okay, he's down to business. Gave him the answer again. I said, thanks to your support. Again, trying my best to charm him. It didn't go well. He just looked at, straight at me and just continued firing questions. The questions just kept coming at me. And so what's the ratio of giving to, that you fund to Toronto versus the rest of the country? And, you know, how many kids did you impact? And what programs are the most, you know, the programs that raise the most funds for you? And just a gazillion questions. I was like, okay, it's a good thing I'm familiar with our impact report. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. And then he looked at me, and just as I thought that I sailed through all of these questions and that I, you know, I can move on to the happier impact report stuff, uh, he looked at me and said, so how much is sitting in your overall endowment fund at the foundation? What? I didn't have those numbers on me. 
And I actually couldn't remember for the life of me how much is in there, 20 million, 10 million, 30 million, I wasn't sure. And then I said, I, I was honest, I said, I, you know, I, I actually, I need to get back to you on that one. And he said, oh, you don't know it. I said, no. Admittedly, I don't, but I can, I, I'll shoot you an email, I'll let you know. And this was getting a little uncomfortable. My confidence <laughs> starting to erode, you know, I, I thought to myself, you know, I've got this. I know fundraising, I know the art of fundraising. Mm, I don't know, didn't feel so good. <laughs> that comfort zone, right? Um, so then he, he didn't get confused by it, like he was just straight on his mission. He looked at me again and said, and what about your investment fund? What's the, what, what was the return on investment this year? Again, I'm like, oh my God, I don't remember this stuff. I mean, I think it was presented in a finance meeting sometime or an update, but I, I really don't remember. So he proceeded to ask me all these different questions about specific, very detailed investment portfolio questions. And I, I just said, I'm sorry, I'll have to get back to you with that. He seemed unimpressed. He looked at me and just said, you should know your numbers before you go out to ask for money. Wow. This was not how I envisioned this meeting going. I felt embarrassed, I admit it. I felt embarrassed. I thought to myself, wow, this is, this is not going well. I tried to direct him, took out the impact report, started start speaking about a youth that he supported through a scholarship. It, it helped a little bit. It got us off to a you know, more positive you know, line of conversation. Um, sharing an impact story is always a good idea. It's always warm and fuzzy, hopefully, and, and it, yes, it was. Um, so then, what happened then? Um, I tried to salvage the meaning as much as I could, uh, tried to end on a positive note, talking about the impact, talking about the youth, promised him that I would get back to him with that information. I didn't manage to renew the gift. He said, I'll think about it, I'll get back to you. Okay, wow, this is a disaster. Like, I thought this was a straightforward, I went in there with my confidence, I thought I got this in the bag. No, he didn't renew his gift. What now? This was so straightforward. How did, how did I screw this up? I went back to the Children's Aid Foundation, back to the office. I thought, this is a big whoops. And I felt embarrassed, um, but I thought to myself, you know, we all make mistakes, and presumably he has as well, so this is now about recovery. And recovery for me is about owning up to this mistake, um, being as sincere, as authentic, as real as I can be in my communications with him. And so I knew that I, knew that, that was the only way to go about it, and, um, and I knew that the meeting could have gone better, but that I now have a mission, and that's to salvage the relationship. So I emailed him, um, and the title of my email was, thank you for keeping me on my toes because I wanted to catch his attention, and I thought, let's be real. And in the email I just wrote, I should have known my numbers, and here they are. And I just listed it all, took all the information from our finance directors, I made sure I've got it all, bullet points, covered all, all the ground, and um, I didn't hear back for a couple of days. I was holding my breath, thinking, whew, how is he gonna take it? Is he gonna forgive me for my mistake? Um, but you know what, after a couple of days, he did email me back, and he actually renewed his gift in the email. He 
kind of acted as if nothing happened and just let me know that he would like to renew his gift and I was thrilled. And then he said, but call me, I have an idea. And I was like, okay, this is, this is great. So he, I guess he's warmed up. I called him, ideas are always music to my ears. I like ideas, usually. Although, you know, th that's, that's a whole other story because we all know donors who have all sorts of interesting ideas. I don't know, it's like I'm thinking about the teddy bear fair gala that Children's Aid Foundation run and a donor that wanted to put like, like robotic teddy bears on the table as centerpieces. Not a great idea. Anyway, so we all have those, those donor ideas, but this was not one of them. I called him and he was actually lovely and very gracious on the phone. He totally disregarded what happened. He didn't bring it up again. Um, and what he did say was, I have an idea. I think I want to do um, an employee-led event for my firm. Um, kind of a battle of the bands, if you'd like, and I'm going to help you raise unrestricted revenue for the foundation, and I'm going to reach out to all my contacts and ask them to support, buy tickets, and make donations. I was like, what? This is amazing. Yes, we'd love to do that. This is great. And I think what I realized at that moment is that, yes, he grilled me. He absolutely grilled me. And I made the mistake of not being totally 100% prepared with those little numbers the deeper numbers and all that, especially when I knew he was an investment guy. He was exactly the kind of guy to go deep. But some of those donors that ask a gazillion questions and grill you, actually the more questions they ask, the more engaged they become. The more engaged they become, the more they're in your corner, right? Like that's just part of the course. And he was exactly that kind of guy. And so the next thing I knew, we were organizing an employee-led event with him. The next thing I knew, he was personally making calls to get his colleagues, his clients to make donations. And he's been in our corner ever since and it's, the, the relationship has continued and I've managed to salvage it. So I think um, one of my lessons is just transparency. Be yourself, be authentic, own up to your mistakes when they happen, because they will happen, it's impossible. They make them, we make them, it's all good. Um, and really, I think they appreciate sincerity, um, but of course, the other lesson was um, I asked our director of finance to pull out some of those numbers that we never know, that we never remember, because it sits it's buried deep into some report that only our finance committee reads or something. Um, and we shared them at a staff meeting and made sure everyone uh, knows them for future reference, because I was probably not the only one who didn't know those numbers. Um, but yeah, the lesson is you know, I know we're all prepared to go out and make asks and get those, get those dollars, but know your dollars before you go out to get those dollars is, is definitely a lesson. So thank you for listening to me today. Thank you, Ravit. Her talk brought to you by every CFO ever, so. <laughs> Should all know our numbers, just kidding. So um, we're gonna have one more speaker and then we're gonna do a 10 minute bio break because I know you all need another drink and you all have to pee because you came right here from work. So um, if you can hold on for one more wonderful speaker before our break. Up next is Sada Fergie. Corporate Partnerships at Toronto International Film Festival is her gig. Uh, in reading Sadaf's submission, I was reminded how lucky I am to work in a place that is a great fit for me. 
Um, and I know there are people out there who struggle with that certainly every day. So she's here to tell us uh, how she navigated her way to where she is now. So welcome, Sada. Thank you, thank you. I can't uh, see anyone, which is fantastic. Great, <laughs> exactly how I like it. I'll start by telling you a little bit about myself. I grew up in a very traditional society in a completely different part of the world. And growing up, I fought things like patriarchy, gender battles, double standards. I fought to be heard, to be recognized, to be treated equally. At 18, when I came to Canada, I continued to fight. As a visible minority, I felt I had to build myself to be stronger, more perfect, without flaws, so that I could be seen for how I conducted myself rather than the color of my skin or the fact that I was a woman. And in my fight for equality, I learned that I had to bring to the table value that could be measured, quantified, because more measurable value meant more opportunities. When it came time to choosing a career, I knew early on that I wanted to dedicate my life to helping others and contributing to a greater good. So a career in fundraising and nonprofit was an easy choice for me, one that resonated well. And when I became a fundraiser, and I started thinking about what success would look like, I turned to the veterans in the industry. At my first job at the National Ballet of Canada, a couple months in, we had a new incoming director of development. And I remember one of the first conversations she had with me. She said, Sadaf, I'd like to spend some time working on your development and your progress, because I see a lot of myself in you, You're young, energetic, enthusiastic, hungry. This really excited me. It started a bond. I looked up to her as a mentor. Now she started her career in sponsorship and was then doing major gifts. And when I looked around me at the other successful fundraisers in the industry, those were who were bringing in the largest amount of dollars, making the largest amount of impact, who were the strongest relationship builders, the most inspiring and passionate speakers. Almost all of them, no matter where they'd started their career, had landed in major gifts. I saw a common theme. So I began to think there must be one way to do this, to be successful in this industry. I was going to pursue a career in major gifts. And so off I went in pursuit of the major gifts glory. which, alas, did not come. <laughs> Some years later, when I finally got handed responsibility of building my own portfolio of donors, I got a list of mid-level donors that I had to upgrade to major gifts. And I remember sitting in my office, staring at this Excel sheet, and the first name on the list was a Joe Smith. Joe was an in, a retired insurance professional. He was single, he didn't have any kids, he owned XYZ property. He was the perfect candidate. The strategy was, get a meeting, build a relationship, 
build interest, boom, upgrade. <laughs> Sound simple? Yeah, I was like sweating buckets. Before I could even pick up the phone, I had all these questions running through my head. The first of which was, well, what was I going to say about why I was calling? Joe had just given us a donation a couple months ago. He had all the updates and all the information he needed from us. I mean, I couldn't exactly say I was calling to upgrade him from five to $25,000. <laughs> and then amongst the other questions came the most dreaded and feared. That if we got to the ask stage and Joe turned around and said to me, Sadaf, what's in it for me? I thought to myself, what value am I providing? I couldn't measure it very well. I certainly couldn't match it dollar for dollar. I had a very hard time reconciling the intangible value I was offering my very generous donors. Now I knew in my head that asking for money for a worthy cause was nothing short of courageous. Yet the act itself of asking for something without offering either equal or greater value that I could measure in return felt unnatural to me because of what life had taught me about providing value. For someone who'd been screaming for equality her entire life, I didn't think I was providing a very equal exchange. Right now, I can imagine every major gift officer in this room is cringing wanting to interrupt me with a long list of the value, be it tangible or intangible, that a major gift provides to a donor. I know this list well. <laughs> and I assure you that this is not a reflection on the nature of major gifts, but about honesty and sharing with you what value meant to me. So after pursuing major gifts for a really long time, I learned a few important things. One, that I'd made the mistake of taking someone else's definition of success and applying it to myself. And two, that we are all different with varying skills, ambitions, and strengths. Some of us are best suited on the front lines asking for the big dollars, but others are a beast at research or data mining. The point is, no matter what our talent, there's a place for everyone with a good heart and the right attitude. The trouble was sometimes finding a fit for ourselves as we defined what success meant for us on a personal level. Recently, I made the move from major gifts to corporate partnerships, and that was no whoops. Today, I work with businesses to help meet their organizational goals and align their brand with that of the Toronto International Film Festival. I ask my partners for money, but I track their objectives against the dollars they've invested. But most importantly, I'm still helping to further a very important mission, to transform the way people see the world through film. Truly successful major gift officers are those who feel empowered by asking for philanthropy dollars. This was not the case for me. But now, for the first time in a long time, I feel empowered in my career. 
I can pick up the phone and call the insurance company that Joe Smith was working for without sitting in a pool of my own sweat. So when I let go of this idea that there was only one way to be truly successful in this industry is when I found a place for myself. Thank you. What a great way to end the first half. Everybody, 10-minute uh, bio break, get a drink, do what you gotta do, there's still food in the back, and we'll regroup. So we have three more wonderful speakers to close out our night, uh, but I thought, since I've been up here all night acting like I haven't made any whoopses, I would tell you a quick story about something that happened to me uh, before we kick into it. Um, before I worked at Blakely, I worked at Crohn's and Colitis Canada. That was my first real fundraising job, really, out of um, college, uh, other than a little other whoopsie, which I may or may not tell you about later. Um, and I got hired by the direct marketing team. I worked for uh, Jason Novelli, who was my manager, and I was coordinator. I'd never really had a, a fundraising job before, and as I came in, he was doing a special mid-level appeal off the side of his desk. He had identified 200 donors, wanted to send them a separate appeal. All he needed me to do was print the, uh, print the letters, put them in envelopes, get them in the mail. I said, great, I definitely know how to do that. So here I am, printing away, sealing, sending, walk with just great triumph to his office. I've done it. First real job, mailed it, I'm gonna make all this money. And he looks to his right, and what does he see? It's the box of BREs. It's full. So I've mailed a letter to 200 mid-level donors. Not a BRE in sight. So it's always great news when you do that, guys. So that was one of my first weeks on the job, but he kept me. Um, so, I mean, who's to say if that was the right move? But uh, we all make mistakes, guys. Um, so let's listen to one of our other speakers now. We're all refreshed and we're ready for Molly Freeman. Molly is the manager of annual and planned giving at Cystic Fibrosis Canada. She's a fellow Humber grad, go Humber, uh, and has a story to share about a very real condition that we all experience. I know that it's something I talk about a lot with my friends and colleagues, uh, and I'm so glad that she's gonna get up here and talk about it with us. So welcome, Molly. Wow, yeah, you really can't see anyone, so. <laughs> a few weeks ago, two months after being promoted to the leader of our direct marketing program, I presented my 2018 strategy and budget to our executive team. I felt confident and in control and excited for our organizational leadership to learn more about what our DM program looks like and what it has the potential to achieve. Afterwards, a colleague on the leadership team asked my boss where I'd been hiding. I was surprised at that question. What did she mean by hiding? I was almost offended. Why was this person surprised that I did well? I'd been working at Cystic Fibrosis Canada for almost two years, so why was I only just being noticed? But I thought about it, and it led me to an uncomfortable truth, that for much of my career, I felt like a fraud that was going to be found out at any second, and it held me back. 
it was two years ago that I accepted my role as Associate of Annual and Planned Giving at Cystic Fibrosis Canada after working in coordinator roles at two large hospital foundations. Despite being rather green in my hospital roles, I was a sponge who learned a lot and had amazing colleagues and mentors who encouraged questions and learning and growth. I was excited to take what I'd learned to a more mid-sized shop where I could really dive in and put all of that learning to good use and to continue to learn and try new things. I was looking for more ownership and I was looking for a challenge. When I started at Cystic Fibrosis Canada, they had only just switched to a new database a month before, just hired a brand new uh, direct marketing agency the month before, and then I found out on my third day of work that my manager was resigning. So, <laughs> all of a sudden, with no experience leading a program of any kind, I was brand new, onboarding a new agency, acquainting myself with a new database, and leading the entire direct marketing program. So, remember how I said I was looking for a challenge? Uh, I <laughs> certainly found one. Sorry, guys. I had only ever been a coordinator before this, like I said, so I don't know whose dumb idea it was to hire me to lead DM. I got asked about the budget by our finance manager and then immediately went and cried in the bathroom. <laughs> it's okay, I survived. Um, <laughs> I had to make decisions about strategy and planning and forecasting, and I lie awake in bed at night just terrified that I'd made the wrong choices. I drafted emails to our CEO that would sit in my drafts for hours and hours before hitting send because I was so anxiety-ridden about the kind of response I might get. Of course I'd heard about imposter syndrome. I'd read Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In, and I'd listened to Brene Brown's TED Talk about the power of vulnerability. And I'd always been a feminist who was such an advocate for owning your accomplishments. Intellectually, I got it. But behind the scenes and in my head was a different story. Despite doing well and receiving positive feedback, I rarely wanted to talk about myself or my program out of fear that I'd be caught in my inexperience or questioned about my decisions or that someone would find out that I was basically just winging it. I let people speak on my behalf and I sat at the back during meetings. My self-doubt and my fear were overpowering everything that I knew to be true of my experience, my education, and my talent. According to a study conducted by the career development agency Amazing If, 40% of female study participants reported feeling intimidated by senior staff in the workplace, and 63% of participants felt that their lack of confidence had a negative effect on their careers. And this phenomenon isn't just true for people who are young or new in their careers. Lady Gaga, Shonda Rhimes, Jennifer Lopez, and Meryl Streep have all been quoted saying things like, I still feel like that loser kid in high school, or I'm no good at this, or why would anyone ever want to see me again in another movie? Meryl Streep said that, guys. <laughs> and it's a hard fact to swallow, isn't it, that 63% of us feel that our lack of confidence is the thing that holds us back, or prevents us from living up to our greatest potential in our careers. That Jennifer Lopez wonders if she's good at what she does. Not to compare myself to JLo or anything, um, <laughs> no big deal, um, but it definitely rings true for me too. This big whoops of underestimating myself, it fed into so many bigger areas of my life and career and allowed those human mistakes we all make to feel like catastrophes. 
It held me back from championing important and worthwhile strategies and taking necessary risks, advocating for my growth, and really trusting myself. As fundraisers in service of a charity's mission, we need to be innovative and creative and confident. And for me, imposter syndrome and a lack of confidence led to procrastination, fear of change, and complacency, which held me back from being the best fundraiser I could be. I had ideas that I'd keep to myself out of fear they'd be turned down, and I didn't feel qualified enough to really advocate for important strategies. And it not only held me back in my own career, but it affected the organization too. Our mission and vision as an organization is to end CF. We invest in research and care and advocacy efforts to serve the more than 4,200 Canadians with CF. This is important and necessary work. But what would happen if I continued to keep my ideas to myself out of fear? What would it mean for the CF community if I wasn't brave enough to be innovative? We owe it to both ourselves and the communities that we serve to give as much of our talent as we can when we go into the office every day. And I was letting my imposter syndrome keep me from living up to what I could achieve for that community. Once I realized how much this was affecting my career and potentially my organization's bottom line, I really worked hard to overcome it. When I started reporting to a new leader in June, I let her know that my goal for the year was to be more visible and to be able to profile my work and my program. I met with our HR director to talk about professional development opportunities, and I registered to take a course in digital marketing at U of T, and I applied to speak at this event. But most importantly, I began bringing my ideas forward and really advocating for them. I took a seat at the table and I spoke up. And despite it being uncomfortable and scary and really not innate to me at all, it worked. Turns out faking it till you make it is a real thing, <laughs> and it works. Um, small wins helped build my confidence, which led to bigger wins like being promoted and rolling out an innovative new year-end direct marketing strategy. That strategy ended up generating over $100,000 more for Cystic Fibrosis Canada than what we achieved in last year's campaign. It's a work in progress, and I'm sure there'll always be days that I feel like a fraud or like I don't quite know what I'm doing. I think when you continue to challenge yourself, it comes with the territory. Um, but I mean, if JLo and Meryl can do it, I can too, because we're basically the same, right? <laughs> Thank you, everyone. I wonder if that should be a new motto for us as lady fundraisers, just do it like Meryl and we'll get through it. Um, I can't tell you the number of times I've had imposter syndrome conversations um, between doing stuff like this in Congress and, and my job. Um, so it's, it's such an important topic. Thank you again, Molly. Thank you for uh, bringing that forward. Um, I'm gonna tell you about that other whoopsie I alluded to. So. My mentor, um, who actually lives in Singapore and is wicked cool, um, when I met her, she told me that every fundraiser gets one whoopsie. And what she meant by that was we all have that job on our resume that we go, oh, we, I was only there for four months. Um, and we don't really want to talk about it. And so I, the overachiever that I am, went ahead and made my very first job my whoopsie. Um, so coming out of Humber, I was hired... Um, by let's just go healthcare charity in Toronto, not Crohn's and colitis. 
Uh, and uh, the position was capital campaign specialist. Coming right out of Humber. I should have known something was up. And uh, so I walk in on my first day. I have my own office with a door. Wow, this is great. Um, so I sit at my desk. No one talks to me. I'm like, oh, working's easy. Um, and so finally, my boss beckons me into his office, and I realized that my office, because it used to be old um, patient rooms, actually had a connecting door to his office, and he had opened it, so he bellowed, Laura, get in here. Okay, grab my notebook, and I, I walk in. What can I do for you, sir? He was an older gentleman, uh, kind of an old school kind of guy, and he dictates a memo to me. I don't even know what that means. Uh, <laughs> okay, sir, I'll write it out. So I go back to my desk and dutifully type it up, thinking, okay, I can just look for a memo template on Word, this'll be fine. And I bring it back to him, and he looks at it, and he looks at me, and he starts screaming. And he starts saying, how stupid are you? How could you possibly think this would be acceptable? This is day one, I'll remind you. And I went, oh, this is working. Uh, so I, you know, back to my desk, and this happened all day, one memo, just yelled. So I just, I remember going home to my husband that night and just weeping, weeping. I think I've made a horrible mistake. And he goes, you know, hon, sometimes you take things a little hard. Maybe go back tomorrow. And I went, Okay. Day two was just as bad, and he realized, so I was there for four months. It is not on my resume. So that is my whoopsie. Uh, Denny, are you ready? Thanks, Denny. So up next is Gabriel, uh, sorry, Gabrielle. Gabrielle, dang. Gabrielle is an associate director at the University of Toronto, and she is a story that's far too common, uh, and I'm happy to give this issue a voice and to validate uh, to those of you who might be feeling like you're in the same situation. So welcome, Gabrielle. So do you ever have those moments where you feel like your life is a TV show and all of your major activities are accompanied by like theme music? <laughs> As someone who likes to pretend I'm on the edge of being discovered all the time, I pretty much live my life like that. But it is also how I felt on my first day of politics. When I walked in and I saw the big logo and I was handed my Blackberry with a warning to don't ever turn this off, I could hear that power theme music playing and I really felt like I had made it. I was a poli-sci major, I wanted to change the world and a diehard fan of the West Wing. This definitely was right up my alley. And like every job, you know, as the days and the weeks progress, the rose-colored glasses come off, and there are things that we like and things that are not so great. Unfortunately for me, my not-so-great category started to pile up, and this was really because of one small little thing, <laughs> namely that my boss and I were like oil and water. And it was really, it was really a, a tough relationship for me. And it just became worse because 
I started to think and talk about him in the worst ways. The way I would describe him to my partner and my friends and my family was so terrible. It's like I believed he was every villain from every book or every movie I had ever consumed, like mashed together to make this unprofessional, childish bully. Now, was he really those things? Maybe, but he was also born an innocent, tiny baby like us all. <laughs> and he had parents and a, a wife who loved him, and he would go home and sleep in his bed at night like a human being. And I was starting to forget that he, he was a human being. He was a person. My confirmation bias was in overdrive. Anytime he would do something that, you know, I thought was the least bit professional or, um, you know, even like annoying, I would think, yes, yes, that is totally something you would do. <laughs> and from there, the, the relationship and, and the toxic thinking started to produce almost a physical, physical reaction in me. So I would see the outlook preview pane pop up on my screen with his name and I would just cringe. When I would hear his voice in our open concept office, my eyes would roll to the back of my head. And I'm pretty sure my eye daggers were in full force when we interacted. And you know, the feeling was, I think, mutual because our exchanges felt more like interrogations and I would get a lot of emails with all capital letters. Um, and there was a lot of yelling in our meetings, so I don't think there was any love lost on, on either way. But it became so bad that eventually we were ignoring each other in the hallways. So, you know, it's a, it's, it wasn't like the Taj Mahal. We, lived, we worked in a, a normal office with normal standard-sized hallways, and we would literally walk by each other and ignore each other. And I think that's when you, you know things are not that great between you and your boss. And it culminated in uh, a meeting that I'll share with you all because it's that kind of evening. But it does still embarrass me to think about. Picture this. Normal staff meeting, you know, agenda, going through things. Um, and things get a little heated and then my boss is yelling at me, if you're so unhappy, why don't you just leave? To which, of course, I stood up and said, consider this my resignation, and walked out of the door. And I went back to my desk, furiously typing. And in that moment, I felt so powerful. Like, I had refused to be bullied. I had stood up for myself. But when I think of it now, with time and distance, you know, I think of that as so unprofessional and very childish. But nevertheless, my resignation was out there. And um, it... it got to my ED, and my ED pulled me into his office, and, and we struck a deal. He said, listen, you know, we're in the middle of a political campaign. I really like you. We have a great relationship. Why don't we do this? You report to me, and you can still work with your boss on all the projects. And I thought, yeah, great. I'm going to do that. You can imagine how much worse this made things. <laughs> But in my state of, you know, the arms race of one-upping him, I didn't really step back objectively and think, maybe this is not a good idea. Um, so as you can imagine, it's like a yada 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 story. Things went on, and, and um, we didn't become best friends. 
But um, I eventually left, and I was quite fortunate that I left without um, too much damage to my reputation and a good reference in the ED. I was working in a different city. I was in Ottawa, and politics were very insular, so I, I decided to move back to Toronto, and I stepped back into the fundraising world without learning a really, really hard lesson. And now, uh, when I think of it, and I think of you know, how I contributed maybe to this situation, you know, I can, I can pinpoint some, some things maybe that I could have done better. And, and one is that, you know, I didn't recognize that, that I was dealing with a human being, that my boss was also a person and I was really villainizing him and, and, and that didn't help my situation. Also that I had to be vulnerable to actually repair what, what, issues we had, and I was also responsible for making this relationship work, no matter who the boss was. So at any time, I could have said, hey, do you want to grab a coffee? You know, I really want us to be a good team. How can we make that work? But I didn't, because those things are really hard to do. But they're not as hard as living a nightmare every day. So <laughs> for future reference, maybe that's a good, good thing to do, note to self. Um, and so now, when I think of that lesson, instead of hearing the dun-dun-dun music at my work, I'm back to my good old TV, TV movie power themes. <laughs> Thanks. All too common a story, unfortunately. But thank you, Gabrielle. That was wonderful. I'm going to give the judges a second to get caught up and tell you one last embarrassing story about myself. Um, so when I started at Blakely, um, one of my clients uh, was doing an appeal. Uh, and on the OE, we had designed to put quarters. And wicked cool. Looked great fit with the appeal, foot, really good. This image of a quarter made perfect sense. Client loves it. We're just, it's flying through approvals. Do you guys know that you cannot reprint pictures of money on anything? Because <laughs> I didn't, and neither did anybody else. So luckily, at the very last minute, uh, someone went, hey, is this a thing? Is this allowed? And uh, we looked into it, and I made a good friend at the Canadian Mint. <laughs> um, it took me days, because the government of Canada does not want you talking to people at the Mint, and they only have a fax number. So I literally, on a piece of paper, I am weeks into, or months at this point, into my tenure at Blakely, and I'm standing in front of a fax machine with a piece of paper that on a Sharpie, I have written, please call me in my phone number, like it's a ransom note. <laughs> And just panicking. I am in tears standing there. A lot of my stories have me in tears. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm freaking out. And we can't tell the client, obviously. Um, we don't want them to panic. But I just, I don't know what to do. So anyway, my friend at the Mint and I worked it out. And we put something approximating a quarter on the front of it. But um, just as a general life lesson for you all, if you didn't have that information, don't do that. Um, they'll come get you. Turns out it's prison, too. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> Just got good at this. Um, 
Denny, are we good? Thumbs up, all right. No problem. So our final speaker tonight, guys, it's Kevin Brezina. Kevin is the manager of monthly giving at the CAMH Foundation. Uh, and when you send the committee a submission, there's a section where we just ask the speaker to tell us a little bit about themselves. Uh, and among other things, Kevin wrote the simple sentence, I like cats. And, and I thought, I like Kevin. Uh, so Kevin's going to close out the night with a story uh, that I think you're all going to love. Uh, Kevin's whoops was one of the more unique stories that were submitted uh, and something we knew you'd want to hear. So welcome, Kevin. Thank you very much. Great to be here, guys. I'm going to take you back to 2011 long time ago. Lots changed since then. It was uh, Barack Obama's first term. It was a hopeful time in the world. <laughs> Lots changed since then. So anyway, I'd been working in fundraising for about three years. Um, I'd uh, just received my first big promotion. I was now the senior coordinator of direct response at a national health charity that will remain unnamed. I was uh, drafting data polls, I was putting together mail packs, I was doing email campaigns, uh, raising money for important research projects. I was telling stories about people who were overcoming incredible challenges and I felt really good about that. And one morning I came in and uh, VP of my department poked her head into my cubicle and said, Kevin, I'd like to uh, see you in my office, would you mind coming down, joining us, thank you. <laughs> okay, so gathered my things. Uh, Went down to her office. My boss was already in there. That's always a good sign, right? <laughs> Said, it gets better. Uh, we just wanted to talk to you about uh, your, your recent job performance. Okay, great. She referred to a leather portfolio on her desk and pulled out a printed copy of an email I had worked on recently. Said, this, this is your work, correct? Began to read through it and said, yeah, you know, when I look through this, I see, I see a lot of things, a lot of ideas that I think, you know, when I, 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 we've been talking about this, I think you'd be a great person to redesign our new online donation forms that, that we're planning on launching. We want you to take over designing the user experience of these forms. You're going to be working with the manager of online fundraising and our consultancy, HJC. Anybody from HJC here? No? Okay. Well, they come out of this looking really good. I, it's a shame, but um, me not so much. Um, so I said, great, that sounds like a fantastic project. I, and I got to remind you a few things about donation forums in 2011. So this was kind of the end of the adoption era. Pretty much everybody had something that you could put credit card information into to, to make a donation happen. Um, there was a lot of innovation happening. People were starting to invest in optimizing their user experiences. Uh, this was also the last era where the desktop donation experience was king. There was a time when people would say, how does that look on desktop? That's, that was a thing. Um, third, and I, I mean this is no slight to anyone in this room, I, I reviewed dozens of donation forms when I was working on this project. Most of them were were pretty terrible, they were bad. Uh, and that's not anyone's fault. It, I think a lot of people had just sort of accepted whatever came out of the box with their donation solution. And, and so we had these long sort of donation flows that had a next button at the bottom of it. And you'd, you'd go through page after page of required information. We didn't want to do any of that. 
we wanted to, to basically triage people, ask them questions that were relevant to them when they were gonna make their gift. Are you a person or are you a company? That means something to people, you know? They, they can answer that question. And then we would stream them into a donation form that would, that would answer their particular needs. And if, you know, another great thing about donation forms in 2011, if you made a mistake and you wanted to go back to the start, you lost everything. You, you, it was all gone. It was like, back to, oh, you want to restart. Back to square one with you. So we wanted that problem to go away too. So we started off on this, this process of, of designing this great donation form. We, we put it in PowerPoint and we, we did animations that rendered the, the, the images when you clicked on it and we, we user group tested it and we shared it with family and friends we soft launched it and then we we walked down to the vp's office and said you know what i think we're done i think we, i think we've got something really good she said okay she put it up on her desktop she took a look at it she gave a donation i think it was 50 bucks which was nice um she said this this form is great go forth into the world and conquer it with this donation form i'm probably not her exact words but that was the sentiment um, and so we launched uh, as a sort of 50-50 test. You know, you always have to be careful. Test these things. You'd want to jump in. So we ran it head-to-head -head with the old forms. In the first week, the new forms were 20% up. Yeah, right? That's really good. Did one thing, 20% lift. Second week, 25% on the new forms. And so we said, we're shutting down the test. This is, this is great. We're going to roll it out. Fantastic. And the incredible gains kept going. Next week, we were 10% up over the previous week. And there were doubters in the organization that said, there's a lot of media impressions going on right now, guys. I think this is just overflow from that. This is, that's, that's what this is. It's a lot, of, a lot of buzz right now around us. We're hot. Um, so, okay, fine. <laughs> week three, it, it continued to grow. Media impressions weren't there. So, okay, maybe it wasn't that. Oh, well, maybe you're cannibalizing revenue from other sources, you know? I mean, that's supposed to be going over to the transportation program. Something like that. But no, we, we checked all the numbers. All the money was still going to the other places. We were, just, we were just doing really, really well. And this went on for week after week. Kept seeing these incredible gains. It was great. Felt fantastic. Came in one Monday morning and found an email in my inbox from the VP that said, Kevin, when you get this, come down to my office. I want to talk about the new online donation forms. <laughs> okay. So I gathered my things, went down to her office. She said, I've got some good news and I got some bad news. The good news is, I've seen enough evidence to conclude that that donation form that you've designed is, it's, it's clearly the winner. It's a great form, it's doing a great job, it's removed so many barriers to people completing their gifts that we're seeing incredible gains. Well done, congratulations. The bad news is we are shutting it down immediately. <laughs> so the reason we're shutting it down immediately is because uh, the director of finance received a phone call this morning. Apparently $100,000 of donations came in over the weekend, specifically came in over the weekend between the hours of 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. on Sunday morning. That was about 5% of our annual goal, essentially, <laughs> within four hours. And the, the extra bad news was that also on this conversation that our finance director was having, uh, I at decided to shut down our processing account because we had become one of the highest volume locations for online credit card fraud in the entire country. So the second phase of the donation forum project was not as exciting as the first. Um, 
basically involved a lot of uh, sourcing and quotes and testing and implementation of online fraud prevention uh, software. And it did work. Uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, we, we managed to eliminate the fraud. And we, what we were left with was a really nice, healthy gain on our donation forms. We were about 20% up, well, you know, year over year. And a lot of the assumptions we'd made when we were designing it were proved true, you know? Uh, there, there's such a thing as an in-memory monthly gift. It happens. Pe a lot of people, when they make those monthly gifts online, they're thinking about somebody. Not everybody that makes an in-memory gift wants to send a card. This was like, I don't know, it was like sacrosanct that no, everyone wants to send a card when they're memorializing someone. That's just common knowledge. Um, but no, 40% of people don't. I have the user data to back that up. Um, and and I, as far as I've heard, anyway, the, the donation form continued to be used till about 2016, which in digital fundraising, I think five years is a pretty good run, so I'm pretty proud of that. Um, but when I look back on this experience, I'm reminded that in my fundraising career, I've made a lot of mistakes. I feel fortunate that I work in an industry where oftentimes, with the right people above you, that's encouraged. It's seen as an opportunity to learn. It's seen as an opportunity to do things better. And that's a fantastic thing about fundraising that I don't think we get out of uh, every industry out there. When I look back on all those mistakes that I've made, and there are many, this one, I would say, is, is probably the, the most awesome that I ever made. Though. <laughs> so that's my story. Um, thanks very much for listening, and I'll, I'll turn it over to you. Uh, What a great way to close us out. Thank you, Kevin. So that's it for our speakers, guys. Let's give them another round of applause. Wow. Come on. They were fabulous. So great. So just a few quick housekeeping things before I let you go tonight. Uh, so probably 80% of you guys now are thinking like, me too. I'm getting up there. I'm doing it. Um, and uh, great news. Mark in your calendars now, ticket buyers, future speakers, May 9th. We're doing it again. So uh, put in your calendar. Applications to speak will go out in March-ish, so keep an eye out for that. We talk a lot on Twitter and LinkedIn. That tends to be where we put stuff out. AFP will also send out an email. Um, but if you are interested or have questions, please speak to me or any other of the committee member tonight or in the future. Uh, ton of people to thank really quickly um, to my committee. Jess, Eunice, Sam, Scott, couldn't have done it without you. There's no way. Thanks, guys. Um, thank you to Dela, who stepped in, new AFP employee, and just ran with this, and Cynthia for believing in it. Um, thank you, the first-time speakers, for your hard work and true bravery. I just, I can't get over that anybody wants to do it, so thank you. Uh, thank you, Denny, Juniper, and Andrea for scoring tonight. Uh, we literally can't do this event without you, so just having you here tonight doing this, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, and thank you to the Gladstone for having us. They really came through in a pinch. Uh, this wasn't the initial plan, and they have been absolutely wonderful retweeting us and believing in the event. Um, if I can just be personal for a minute, this event really is a dream come true, and um, thank you all for being here. It means the world to me. So uh, we have the room for several hours, so stay, mix, mingle, drink, hang, or go home and go to bed before 9 o'clock. Who doesn't love that? <laughs>